Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the What's True Health podcast. You're joined by me, Victor, Ellen, and Tate. Hi, everyone. What's up? Um, Ellen and Tate, <laughs> um, they're responsible behind the Into the Red Zone podcast, which we're all a fan of, and actually one of the first podcasts I listened to um, getting into EP. So that was like really big for me. So, <laughs> yeah, starting that off. Um, Highly recommend. Lots of good banter there, and lots of yeah, good yeah. content. Oh, and now you have a podcast. It's gone and full now, circle. Exactly. Yeah. That was. The and point. now you're on it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. When I was listening, I was like, imagine if they went on my podcast, um, or like if I had a podcast and I could get these people on. That'd be sick. And yeah, it's <laughs> happening. I'm not sure why there. you'd want it. That's a, that's what I'm so confused about. Like. <laughs> Like the the chaos and the mayhem and the I'm like, do you know like do you know what you're getting into? <laughs> you, you just sound like fun people to be around, I guess. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> behind it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm really fun, really fun. Just a bit of chaos. Yeah, that's good, yeah. That's good. it's mostly fun with the side dish of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. What would be a good place to start would be, I guess, introduce yourselves, uh, maybe how you got into EP and like where you work now um, and how you got into that space. Yeah. Ellen, yeah? you're first, Queen. Pump it up. Uh, you're just throwing the ball to me because you don't want to talk first. I know how this goes. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll um, just expand whatever Ellen says. <laughs> yeah, that's literally your whole ammo. <laughs> and then Ellen does it. Lots of love, lots of lots of love. Um, okay, so what was the question? <laughs> Sorry, um, introduction. I, yes, introduction. Um, my name's Ellen. I am an exercise physiologist. This is one of those kind of moments where I'm like, as Tate says, "How big is the universe?" When you ask me how I fell into EP, I'm like, "That's a long story." So, do you want the seminar? Or do you want like the really, really short version? I guess. Um, you gotta choose. What do you think, Henry? You pick. I think I think a good in between. You you get to choose how much you want to include. Fucking okay. given okay. a fairly small frame. Yeah, you gotta go. That's that's dangerous asking me to choose, but basically um I the really short cliff notes is um left university, went and did a design degree, hated my design degree, was always very athletic growing up, so I got a job in a gym, started working in that gym, being around, like, PTs and stuff, working on reception and sales, started playing around in the gym, doing the whole, like, hiding in a corner, hoping no one looks at you kind of vibe, and eventually decided that, hey, maybe I want to do something in health science. And as always, as everyone does, the only thing I really knew was physiotherapy that wasn't medicine. So the original plan was to try and get into physio, but I didn't have the 98 ATAR that would allow me to get into physio off the bat. So I was looking at uh, areas or um, other degrees that were very, very similar that had a lot of crossover with physio and I noticed that exercise physiology did. Didn't have any idea what an exercise physiologist was at the time and I 
decided, okay, well, this looks good. I'm going to give this a go and then I'm going to try and transfer into physio like halfway through or something because my subjects will have been exactly the same. And from there I kind of got into EP and I just like fell in love with it. When I learned actually what EP was and what its kind of role was, which is is different now to what I see it strictly being, but just learning about chronic disease management with movement and stuff like that, I just kind of was like, wow, like I don't actually want to be a physio, I want to be an EP. So in answer to your question, I kind of fell into it, but um, I, I ended up loving it. That's great. Sounds pretty similar to us, doesn't it, Victor? Yeah. Well, a lot of people we talked to. Definitely. Um, I think there's a large majority of people who didn't get 99 um, ATAR, so... I feel like that story is very, uh, very prominent. And yeah. yeah, it's so funny. Like I still remember very vividly. Um, I went to UNSW and one of our tutors took us to the Lifestyle Clinic, which is our on-campus um, student clinic, and just asked us, like, do any of you know what an exercise physio- like physiologist is? Like just put up your hand if you do, and no one in what, the class the students, the students. Yeah, students put their hand up no one knew why we were here <laughs> which no, i that's think is hilarious that's similar to yeah. what we experienced i think and we don't know it'll be the same with us if we, if we ask the alcohol that but you know yeah what about you tate tell the story get yeah. in there uh okay so i recently did a podcast with um what's his name daniela armadillo Daniel Armadillo, uh, Daniel Arbilla on his new podcast. What's it called? Um, the honest, honest health chat. Yeah. So he, uh, yeah, I was the, I was the first epic for that. That was really strange. I told a little kind of like a, like a long story of my story, I guess in that, on that podcast, I think it was, I think that's what happened. Um, so if you want to go check that out, if you want the long story, but I'll give you guys the short story. So how did I fall into EP? A bit like Ellen, I'm just backpacking off what she said as I, as always. Um, I kind of fell into it. Uh, I didn't take school seriously at all. Uh, I'm pretty sure I s- slept in my exams, didn't do any work. I don't know what my, back then it was called your UAI. I don't, I don't even know what it stands for, but I didn't even look at it. I don't know what it was, but I just applied to a bunch of things. And I was like, oh, I'll do this. And then I'll transfer to physiotherapy. I did prac at one physiotherapy clinic. And I was like, fuck this shit. I don't want to touch people. Um, I was like, I'm out. I don't want to just massage people. This is this is fucking weird. Uh, and so I continued with my degree because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was like, well, the best way to find out is just to keep doing shit till you you fall over enough that you like manage to stop falling over. Um, and then I had a prac with the EP, and I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Let's see, what, let's kind of see what happens. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to help people. I think that's the thing that was kind of always a foundation to everything was I wanted to help people. Uh, kind of value that a lot. It was really cool. Um, yeah. And I just kind of, yeah, I just, I, I'm working doing this for 10, 11 years or something. I I forget. Time is just a construct to me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's probably like, it's probably the best quick overview I can give you. And then I kind of got into musk rehab when I was working. And then I've sort of, I'm kind of, I don't know, I've had some doors opened in the past couple of years for me, which is kind of cool, into uh, trauma and chronic health conditions. And that's kind of 
found a lot of interest in there. And I've sort of been like dabbling in there a little bit, been getting a few clients in and around that space, which has been um, really exciting and kind of uh, you, you go through ebbs and flows of shit in life. You always do. It never stops. It doesn't matter how much you care about something or someone. That always ebbs and flows. It's really normal. Part is is that you either choose to give up when you're at the bottom, or you you keep trying and you get back up to the top, and then I'll I'll go down again, and you kind of keep doing this thing in life. And I kind of just in the bottom part of like my career, and I was like, what do I do? I don't I don't know. And this has kind of got like a whole lot of passion back for me as well, like expanding on what I can and can't do, and me choosing more and more of what I want to do and how I want to help my clients and uh, helping people explore building a better relationship with exercise and training and themselves. It's fucking dope. I really enjoy it. Love it. Um, what stood out to me was that you didn't like, um, you did physio, like a practical, and you saw that um, like they were massaging people all the time. And yeah, that was a real turn off, I guess. Um, yeah, I've had a similar experience, I guess, when, when I did my, uh, my prac, I did a work experience before I um, got into uni, but yeah, I saw, yeah, it's just not appealing to be massaging an old lady's back, I guess. Um, at least to me, maybe Henry might enjoy it. Um, what do you think, Henry? Um, yeah, I wouldn't go use the words of enjoyment, but uh, like it depends, right? Like physios. That's the stereotype of what physios do. Who knows what exactly physios can do? Some people might not use much manual therapy, but yeah. Yeah, and it depends. I guess most people wouldn't really find massaging someone that enjoyable, I don't think. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know at this stage. I uh, kind of commenting on that, right? So we look at what physiotherapy traditionally used to be, and it was like a lot of manual therapy-based stuff. It was a lot of... I mean, not too long ago, I, you know, I went past a physiotherapy clinic and they were still putting like heat packs on people and like walking away and then we're charging these people gargantuan amounts of money. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like just slap a few heat packs here and there. Everyone's sitting on a table and I get a little massage and see you later, you know? And I'm like, maybe some people want that, you know? Maybe they like the idea and it's kind of nice. And me personally, I'll, I'll pay way less and go, I don't know, get a massage somewhere. It cost me 60 bucks. I want to get my skin moved around a little bit, you know, that's kind of nice, but I'm probably not going to pay like 150 bucks for like a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever they're charging for it. And definitely the industry is changing, but I do still think that majority of physiotherapists that are currently practicing probably sit in that space of saying manual therapy is really necessary. It's probably a crucial part of their practice. And whether that's something that they internally feel or they feel pressure is put out, upon them by the community or society or whatever it might be. I think it's always important to note that um, I, as with most people, they're usually self-limiting beliefs that we have to be stuck in a certain way because the environment we're around really limits us in being able to kind of expand out from there. You know, you pick, pick people around that want to stay really traditional, you're probably going to stay really traditional. So yeah, I think that's just kind of like, I guess my thoughts on the whole, whole part of, you know, me doing the prac at, at a physiotherapy clinic and be like massage me. I don't really want to touch people. That's okay. I, I love touching my friends. I'm like I'm a big hugger. Ella knows this. I'm like a big hugger. I hug everyone. I kiss like a heap of my friends. Like, you know, it's always really fun. Uh, but strangers, no. <laughs> Not going to just kind of yeah. 
Yeah, it's not a vibe for me. I don't know, Ellen, if you've had experiences in this kind of space. Like, okay, so just as a side note, this is what this is the closest as an EP I get to manual therapy. So it's the only thing I can compare it directly to, which is assisted stretching. So for some of my clients who, um, particularly some of my clients who are doing like very low intensity, more um, grounding, mindful movements, um, I offer some assisted stretching as part of that because it's very relaxing and they really like it. But having to hold people's limbs for like two minutes, fucking tiring, okay? (laughs) Like, it's tiring. And you are, I got doms once in my elbow from giving someone assisted stretching. <laughs> I was just like, I, I just like, I was just like, what is going on? And I can only imagine, like, if you were someone who was performing a lot of, like, manual therapy, it would just be exhausting. Like, your arms and hands would just be wrecked if that was, like, every yeah. single client that you're seeing every day like that just would be uncomfortable like I don't have to do that very often and it's not something that I offer my clients unless I feel like it's really like really relevant to them but yeah like I wouldn't want to be in a position where I had to do that kind of labor as part of my job all the time so I'm with Tate on that one mind you loading and unloading bars is really tiring as well Oh, it is. Uh, that is tiring as well. But yeah. at least it's over quickly and you can sit down afterwards. Oh, and like. I fucking sit right down. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. interesting. Um, you mentioned that the traditional physio um, is more about manual therapy and massaging, dry needling, but now there's this movement towards... I don't know, exercise-based practice, so exercise-based practice, evidence-based practice, where um, maybe those modalities are becoming less and re- less relevant um, in today's I context. think they, yeah. So would it be fair to say that the difference between an EP and a physio is now, I guess, getting smaller and smaller as um, these sharp divisions aren't there anymore? Would that be a fair comparison, do you think? Yeah, I feel, this is me personally, I'd love to hear what you guys actually think. But I'm a firm believer that if we're all doing like evidence-based practice, we're all basically doing the same thing in most circumstances. So it makes sense that our scopes would look very, very, like becoming very, very similar. Like there's still some differences. Like Tate and I have talked about how physios are trained in like a in acute care in a hospital setting, which is slightly different, like ICU, respiratory-related stuff, like we don't get exposure to that at all. So there Mm -hmm. are some differences, I think, still in, like, hospital care between physios and EPs. But if we're just talking about private practice um, and general musk care, which I think this conversation is centering around, correct me if I'm wrong, then I think that, yeah, we should all kind of, as the evidence has emerged and keeps emerging and as our practice should change to match that evidence, it all should start kind of looking a little similar. I definitely agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dan mentioned this on the uh, last couple of episodes. It doesn't matter what country you're from, 
like even in Spain or whatever, England, the evidence doesn't change you know, depending on what country you're on. Uh, so everyone should be at least um, if they're following evidence-based practice, they should be um, performing similarly or doing similar interventions or um, providing similar care. So yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe manual therapy, I guess it does have its place. Um, especially to me, I think it, it's valuable as a temporary analgesic in a sense to, in order to promote more physical activity or more, um, I guess, range of motion. But beyond that, I don't see much, um, like it's not as sharp as a division as it used to be is what I'm sort of getting at. We used to be the specialists in exercise and the physios will do the manual therapy, which um, I'm still hearing those narratives in, in, um, yeah. uh, but now I feel like the professions have evolved. I feel like, yeah, the pressures, the professions have evolved in a way in which there's no, the scopes are similar, but we haven't reached that point where we have a real definitive sort of answer. Um, they, I guess they're coming closer and closer together. Maybe some point in the future, there's a merged degree. Um, and then everyone's just one thing. But I feel like that's where we are historically. Uh, it's just interesting to think about um, how these professions have evolved. Yeah. Like for me, like I think, like for me, I can't, I can't really comment on the value of manual therapy because I don't know enough about it because I've, I haven't done research on it. I haven't done, you know, I can speak to people and they can tell me what they think about it, but I don't know conclusively. But like from what I hear as well, remember that chat we had, Victor, with um, the head of physio at UCID? the unit coordinator she did make a point which was interesting to hear which aligns with what we've been saying here that we asked her about the effectiveness of manual therapy and she did respond with um that obviously there's a lot of manual therapy methods that have become outdated and not sort of not as useful as we may think and that she's now with this course that she is developing that they're that they're ad uh, adopting this sort of idea of only looking at researched methods that actually are effective, which again comes back to the point which we were talking about, which I think it definitely is the whole physio world is honing in on this thing of moving to more towards exercise and EP because they're starting to realise through research that a lot of these manual therapies aren't as effective as we think. Mm. Uh, I feel like... Ooh, sorry, oh, sorry Tate. Sorry. You want, do you want to go? Do you want to go? Can I say one thing and then you can go? Oh, go for it. Pump it up. You're a queen. Otherwise, I'll forget because I've got serious problems in my brain. Um, it, the thought of may have already gone just because of that interaction. No, I think that I think just to kind of chime in a bit, we should be careful about saying stuff like, I don't know, manual therapy isn't effective. I think manual therapy is extremely effective. I think it's not effective for the reason people think it is. And that's yeah. the big difference. So, like, and that's why even even your professor, I don't know them, I don't know what research is specifically talking about, but even if they were going to say, oh, well, this technique works, my question is, well, why does it work? Like, mm -hmm. is it because they've got a therapeutic alliance with the practitioner who's touching them and touch is really relaxing? Is it being because they've been given 
reassurance this is going to be effective is it going to be because of the messaging that was outside the clinic when they walked in is it going to be because of the experiences they've already had with family members um, and loved ones who found manual therapy really effective like there are all of these um contextual effects that impact why physiotherapy is effective um and i feel like it's important to kind of denote those things and in that same frame of mind it's important to look at exercise and go well exercise is actually no more effective for managing pain than manual therapy is according to the research but the difference is in what the argument i would make would be that exercise has a whole other host of benefits as a modality um, on health generally so I'm going to choose the modality that best aligns with what their person's meaningful activities are and what their pain potentially is stopping them from doing. Movement can be very effective because it mimics those kind of activities. So you're going through that practice and also plus the health benefits, I think, give it more value than doing a modality that doesn't have those other side effects. But I just kind of wanted to give some context there because I think it's important to not have a conversation which is saying that exercise is better at managing pain because that's not accurate mm. either. Do you think do you think that possibly physios are finding it hard to move away from or to use alternate methods other than manual therapy in terms of say using more exercise based treatment because of their lack of um, sort of developed knowledge at uni? Because we have seen that they don't actually have that much in terms of subjects towards exercise description. So they're sort of not well rehearsed in that area. Neither did we. I don't know, Tate, I'll throw to Tate, but like I had like three, like mm, I had like one subject which was like, these are how we do like compound movements. This is a deadlift. This is a squat. And it was like with a stick, not even a real barbell. Um, now, granted, UNSW actually has a strength and conditioning course subject now, but back in my day, they definitely didn't. And we didn't have anything on programming or load management or just basic SNC. So a lot of that, a lot of EPs had to learn by themselves, like just like a lot of physios. Like I'd be curious to hear if that was also your experience, Tate. I mean, I guess we also... We then got thrown in the deep end on placement and then we kind of got a bit more exposure, but um, it was very, at least my experience was very uh, formulaic in terms of like everyone gets a sit to stand and everyone does this and not that there's any big problem with generalised training, but again, it just didn't allow for much actual individual thinking, if that makes sense. Anyway, Tate, I'm curious to hear what you think. (laughs) So... Look, I mean, I mean, we knew we've talked a little bit about manual therapy and and kind of how physiotherapists kind of really centralised a lot of their kind of treatment outcomes around manual therapy. I think you need to look at kind of the change that's kind of occurred within the industry. You know, people are trying to open up these large clinics. Everybody's very short term orientated. Very, I need to get people coming back on a regular basis in order to make this this practice profitable and we'll do whatever it takes to kind of get there. So I think one thing that in itself kind of drives these very short-term 
narrative outcomes would be like, oh, well, I need to get, I need to get that thing where the narrative was, oh, you fix me by massaging me. Oh, I better come back next week, and then I'll, I'll sell them, upsell them some more sessions. And I think that really perpetuates it itself. So we need to actually look at the community as well, and not just the universities or the governing bodies to say, whoa, why? Where's all this like forced repeat bookings on everyone coming from? I know you've got a business to run, but if it revolves around short-term outcomes and not the person actually you know, getting better and, and self-managing, then there's an ethical issue here. Uh, and I think that's just something to really note on the whole manual therapy part and physiotherapists getting really stuck in that space. Um, when it comes to learning and like uh, about exercise at university as well, I think I have one subject. I think I have one subject, which was like how to work out in a gym. The only thing I can kind of say is that a lot of the papers that I had to write were about exercise interventions and their meaningful effects and outcomes for health conditions. Now that's outside of mask health. This was like, oh, actually no, I had like osteo osteopenia, osteoporosis, things like that in there as well. Yeah. You know. But it wasn't like oh, acute lower back pain or persisting lower back pain. It was, it was more like, you know, those kind of, yeah, very well-defined pathoanatomical changes. Uh, how do we improve people's functioning when they have something like uh, emphysema? Came across this study that was like, oh yeah, just make them do shit tons of lat pull downs. Give them all, make all their like big accessory respiratory muscles really fucking strong so they can kind of try to inhale because it sucks and it's hard. And I was like, wow, cool. That's really interesting. You know, things like that. But at the same time, how do I program that out? There wasn't a structure. It was kind of just like, here's an idea, go run with it, see what happens. Um, and that being said as well, is something that kind of Ellen touched on, which was we don't really know the effects that all these things are having anyway. So I had this very interesting discussion today. It's like, <laughs> that's kind of funny. The guy went, oh, so shit. Like it was on ice baths. And I and we asked, I asked the question, you know, well, how, how do you know if it's cold enough? How do you determine what cold is? He goes, oh, I don't know. If I fucking, if I find it cold. I said, yeah, so what do you perceive? So he goes, so it's not like a biological input that it needs to be a certain temperature. No, it just needs to occur. But we've also seen things where people can just do heaps of visualization and meditating towards this idea of exercising hard. And I'm pretty sure we've seen changes in body composition. You know what I mean? There's all these random things that occur. There's so how big's the fucking universe, baby? It's fucking, it's, it's infinitely large and expanding, right? And at some point it will all collapse as well. That's, that's not for like 200 billion years or something though. So don't worry. Don't worry. You, the sun will consume us before that point. That's right. uh, <laughs> but the, <laughs> yeah, Ellen, you said your brain is broken. Did, did, did. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the party, baby. Um, yeah. Uh, and and there's this there's all these contextual factors that are that are that are playing into people's outcomes, and this could be said for manual therapy as well. What if you told them that there could be a negative outcome from doing the manual therapy? Would they still want to do it? If you said, "Oh, this might make you feel like really bad, like really sore tomorrow, you can't function, you can't do anything," are you still okay if I place my hands on you? Like you could get worse. I think if we're really mindful on what we're trying to sell and I think that we really, we need to be mindful on that and the narratives we place behind this, you know? Oh, Hey, I'm doing this cause I want to help you move more. 
moving more is hopefully going to build more independence for you so that you can get your life back towards your meaningful activities, right? And I'm going to help navigate this for you and whatever context you feel safe to explore it in. And all of a sudden that person's like, well, fuck, this sounds like a goddamn adventure and a journey. Let's see what the fuck happens. Mind you, you can't sell that to everyone. Not everybody. Some people just come and go, fix it. Can, can I have more information? No, just fix it. Like that's happened a few times. It's really obnoxious. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of expanding a lot of those points. I know I kind of threw a lot of information out there um, one of those days, but the the thing to take away is, is we don't really know why a lot of these outcomes are occurring. People don't even need to get stronger to get better. So it's not related to strength. Strong people get sore as well. So why are they getting sore if they're already strong? You know, we can make assumptions that, you know, we, people with with more with more muscle mass on them might have a, a better outcome in if they're in critical care maybe i don't know haven't looked at the studies but blah, 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 you know moving's good i think that's the really important takeaway M moving is good yeah sure i can say that i think we could all agree on that um and what that looks like for each person is so vastly different like i remember one of our subjects was like providing exercise classes for people who were classified as morbidly obese. And I remember just walking up the stairs up into the gym and these people were exhausted and out of breath. And for them, that was actually part of their exercise routine and then sitting down and talking through their lifestyle interventions of, you know, oh, maybe we can, you know, you know, maybe eat more vegetables. That might be really nice. That's really, we can classify that as probably being pretty good for you, you know, within context. Um, and exercise was a very short part of it because the capacity for them was much limited and it was like a very slow process. So if walking up some steps is enough for some, that's, that's, that's part of their program. Um, that's them moving. So, um, is, is, is this where you're getting at basically, um, your third point? So we don't know for certain what the mechanisms are behind exercise behind manual therapy all these interventions we don't know the exact mechanism is that right pretty much yeah yeah oh. we don't really know we we have hypotheses <laughs> we have hypotheses fuck is that the word hypotheses and it's even like, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're getting more information on what we we know doesn't isn't a factor like we know for example with movement that individualized exercise programs are just as effective as generalized programs so you can just give someone a squat a deadlift a lat pull down and a row and they're going to probably get better if they think it's going to get help them versus having like a tailored exercise program so there's no difference um we also know that like strength doesn't have anything to do for similar reasons with improving pain. So people can have the same like level of well the a better a better improvement in pain by the end of an intervention, but have no improvement in strength. So wow. it's like too many. So when you, say, many when you say an individualized program, in terms of what, just S and C like or are you talking about Yeah, like well, in terms of anything, like if, if we take like let's just say, oh, I did an assessment on someone and their back is really, like their back is really sore, like that's where they have their chronic pain. Like doing something super specific like, I don't know, doing strengthening their core or like trying to improve their 
posture or trying to do something specific or trying to tailor an intervention to, to activate their glutes their more needs. Yeah, like something more specific doesn't have any extra effect. Like even if my back is sore, I could just do arm movements and it would probably improve my back. Like it so doesn't then, even need to touch the muscle group. Okay. So then coming back to like say in uni when we're learning about sort of tailored programs towards certain um, conditions and stuff like that, does that remove the sort of like effectiveness of all that? Like it just it seems contradictory because it's like, well, we're talking about different things, right? Right now, I'm talking about pain. I'm not talking okay, about diabetes. I'm not talking okay, about so osteoporosis. I'm not talking about cancer. I'm talking about pain. So that's the thing that, yeah, we need to make, yeah. So as it's not like there is a target guide, but, yeah, this is just about must pain specifically. Yeah, a bit like manual therapy can be analgesic so is exercise and we know that it is we know that there is a lot of positive changes from just moving um and if it's and not if this is we don't know if this is true but i'm assuming if it's more meaningful and there's you feel safe and there's more support great fantastic and that's not to take away things like you know if someone says doing glute bridges before i squat means my back doesn't hurt go for it sure but what's the message behind it Right. If the message is, oh, my, my glutes are more active and thus I have to squeeze them and I have to do this really restrictive idea of how I have to move in the long term, that's probably going to it's probably going to crumble. So that that whole idea is built on a very fucking soft foundation. What if it was is uh, we're just moving your hips a bit feels good. And then when you get under that bar, it feels a bit more comfortable at some point. You, know, you probably may not even need to do it, but you can continue to do it if you want. You're your own person. I'm not going to tell you what to do and what not to do. I'm just here to give you options. And all of a sudden, we add this ambiguity to it all, which is what is actually happening. That's the transparency of this all. It's really, amb there's a lot of ambiguity. We don't really fucking know. There's fucking smoke and mirrors and all this kind of shit, right? You could say, I put someone in more pain so they feel less. I fucking see that as manual therapy for the most part. But so is making someone do a painful exercise before they do the, the movement that they inherently find painful. And they go, oh, it's better. I'm I'm fixed. That 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 thing that I just did is what fixed it. No. What if you just felt more and now it's less sensitive? Uh, who knows? The, the part is, is to be okay with sitting in the gray. And that's not to say you can't build a great exercise program for someone who comes in and says, hey, I have lower back pain and, and I feel like I can't pick my kids up and I'm, I'm really scared and it's sore and, and I don't know what to do. That doesn't mean that you don't start building like an awesome program where they get strong enough and, and start picking their kids up because the real thing is is the back pains are stopping them picking their kids up. But what if what if it was before that? What if the part was is my fear of not being able to pick my kids up is making my back pain worse and thus I can't do more and, and it's just cascades, it's just spirals out of control. And all of a sudden you prove to that person they can pick their kids up. And all of a sudden their back pain starts to resolve itself. I've seen I've I've seen it happen before, right? A guy who's terrified of Going, I can't be there for my kids and I don't really want to exist if I can't be there for my kids. And I was like, well, this is fucked. So in two weeks' time from someone who was terrified to go anywhere near his knees, to bend over, touch his knees, was deadlifting like 60 kilos. He goes, what happened? I said, I don't know. Hmm. He, but to convince him that it was okay to pick his kids up and do his life, he felt better with that idea. Hmm. I didn't do anything special. We just wrote a cool, awesome, fun program that I saw him for 45 minutes twice a week and that was it. And he enjoyed it and he got back to yoga and then he's doing yoga all on his own now. And he goes, oh, I've got all these new things I can do in yoga. Yay. It's a really wholesome. It's a beautiful experience.
Um, but to watch that person grow is really cool. But this is, this is the whole point. It's not about the intervention. It's not about the exercise. It's not about exercise versus manual therapy. It's about the person in front of you and where they're trying to go in their life. And that's a really hard, complicated part of this job. This is a thing that you can't be ever prepared for with any of the university degrees out there that say the person in front of you and where they want to go and how they want to live their life. And you have to remove all of your shit from it too, all of your biases, every single one of them. You have to you have to grab them, you have to shove them down your throat and like just eat it up and go, This it's not me. That's I'm I don't want to project all my shit on that person. There's this person in front of me that their own individual, they get to make their own decisions. And my job is to give them what I think with my critical thinking, right? Of what's the path of least resistance. And here are a bunch more if you don't like that idea. I think that's very much so much of what our job is and what you're never going to learn until you start doing the job and all go to a prac where people do that, which I'm, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> oh, really well said. Um, um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that tape because, um, Henry, when you originally asked me, like, do I think that the issue that, that physios are having is that they're not getting enough exposure to exercise, I think the, the issue that physios and EPs both have is that we don't get enough exposure to communication skills because I, I think that. that, yeah, like, to me, like, when I hear Tate's story, I hear that he heard that person, he listened, he understood, and he validated their experience. And then, and I know that Tate does this so fucking well because I have the absolute honour and privilege of being his friend, that he would have just injected some kind of mega fuck ton dose of I believe in you, you've got this, and you can do it. And I, um, I believe 100% in your capacity to do this. And I think we underestimate the power of that. And I think that is what connects in my life. There's lots of things that connect it, but regardless of whether you're doing manual therapy or you're doing an exercise-based intervention, if you have a clinician who's like, I've got you, we're in the trenches together, motherfucker, like we are you're going to get through this, we're going to get through this together, and I believe in your resilience. That is powerful. It's not the manual therapy or the exercise because neither of those two things exist, like, in a vacuum by themselves. Wow. Yeah. Some, ooh, it's like I always oh, say yeah. to my clients, which is, and this is when things get tough and it always happens and it's, we don't want to throw heaps of metaphors at people because they get a little bit confused. And, it, and it's just about kind of giving people a, a sense of control and support. you got to throw yourself to the wind and, and hope that it catches you and you, you fly it on into your, your life, right? You like try less hard, just kind of throw yourself at it. It'll be okay. But if you fall, I'll catch you. And I'll, I'll help you to show you how to pick yourself up again and try again. But I'm, you're, you have to throw yourself off to it. It can't be me. I can just give you the support to try again. And that's pretty much very much what our job is 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 just giving enough support that people feel safe enough to 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 try because so much and how hard this fucking life is and how hard it is being a fucking human being holy fucking shit it's really hard and and it 
unfortunately, we as practitioners, but also fortunately, because we get to share these beautiful experiences with people, is um is supporting them through that and trying to help guide them. And it comes with our own lived experiences as well. But just kind of being, yeah, just be a fucking good listener. Just listen, do the thing, give them support. I think there's something to be said about um, well, how much we learn at uni being about exercise, about pathology, when we're really missing a whole critical component about uh, person-centered care, listening to other people, how to communicate um, the right way. That, I, yeah, I feel like, like we're missing that, half of our education. But I feel like that sort of education doesn't come through books. It comes through lived experience. It's such a, like... It's yeah, definitely. In terms of like having that own that experience, talking to people every day, being there and being in that real world situation is where you really learn that stuff. And I mm-hmm. think yeah, definitely coming out of uni, you're definitely fresh and you know nothing basically because it, it all starts there. I think I think we can practice it a little bit, and it's only mm-hmm. in the sense of it's not about having the full lived experience, but at least having frameworks of how do we approach people with these skills. Like, how do I be a good listener? sit there and you shut up and you listen and you make some fucking notes because I can't fucking recall it. Sorry, only go. Am I It's like a great framework. It's really like the, the, this just, just the oars by itself of am I like listening, ask just the concept of asking open-ended questions. What, why, how, like, don't ask closed questions. Like even just a skill like that and practicing, you know, I don't know, in a tutorial, going like trying to keep a conversation going just by asking open-ended questions. Like there are ways that you can practice these soft skills um, that I think you can teach in university. And I totally agree, um, Victor, with what you said. I think I spent half my university degree um, with on pathology, um, and like linking diseases to things and talking about all of this stuff really like hypothetically and then guidelines and then nothing else. That's my That was my university experience. So I really agree that there was, there's just way too much time spent on the bio and not anything else and treating people like they're machines. And I love how you provided some good strategies there, um, even though it's not included in the in the curriculum as of 2023. But we can still practice those soft skills in tutorials, um, even with friends, um, asking your friends open-ended questions, listening to what they have to say. Um, yeah, so that I feel like those are good frameworks and good skills that students can develop in the, even in their first year. If you want to, or even if, like, oh, Ellen, sorry, pump it up, pump it up, Ellen, pump it up, go. I'm worse than usual today. No, you're not bad at all. It's not a bad thing at all. What are you talking about? You're just eager. You're eager. You're enthusiastic. That's brilliant. Oh, thank. Oh, look at him. So nice. Um, so I think just on that note as well, like I just because you said you liked the open-ended questions example, like another thing is like affirmations. Um, is really, really important. So telling, so if Tate told me, for example, oh, I really had a hard shit day at work and this stuff was really challenging, an example 
An example of a simple affirmation that would show that I had listened would be something simple like, um, I'm really sorry to hear that. Like, I know you would have done your best today. You're really good at X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, right? So you're like telling the person that you've heard them um, and like affirming their experience. And the other one is like reflective listening is a really good, really good one, which is like they tell you something and you paraphrase it back. So again, if Tate was like, I've had a really shit day at work and things are really hard today. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's laughing because he knows it's true. Uh, we all struggle. Um, a, a way you would like reflectively give that back to someone would be something as simple as you can really hear that you've had a super, a super shit day today. And you don't actually, you don't actually try and tack something else onto it because what you're doing is giving the person permission to continue the story. So you'll find when you do reflective listening and you just take what they've said and summarize it, they'll naturally continue talking. So it's yeah, those three. If you're ever, if anyone's interested, I would look into like affirmations. Reflective listening and open-ended questions are great ways to just like start building up your soft skills. So yeah, I think I, it, I, I, I really I really piled on that you were shit at work. I'm sorry. I think it links back <laughs> to the um the idea of empathy over sympathy, which I think we did actually learn a bit in our first semester. Someone mm. said that. Yeah, I I sure. like to I like to use and yes. It, was it a shit day? Actually, today was actually okay, Ellen. That was a surprise. I think it's just been a really fucking... It's been a fucking year, and I... Yeah. <laughs> Ellen knows. Ellen knows. It's been a fucking year. <laughs> um, so what I like to always kind of do... When I think about communication, I think about, like, our most volatile, intimate, vulnerable relationships, and that tends to be our romantic ones. They're really volatile. They always bring up all our shit. They are... Fucking tentative as shit. Like we are careful as fuck. They bring up all our abandonment, all of this shit, right? If we think about how we communicate there, and you can improve this, you can improve this. You can go ahead and do. There's heaps of fucking people out there, you know, telling you heaps of great ways on how to communicate in romantic relationships. And all you do is, if when you learn all that shit and you scale it down to the relationship that's in front of you. Right. And that's how you can be, you can create a, a safe space by being emotionally vulnerable and intelligent and accepting and how we can let go of all of our parts and all of our things that we bring to the table, create that space that, you know, it's all about the other person. Yeah. And with you, you want to get to know someone, uh, keep asking them about themselves, give them, get, get them to uh, tell you more of their story. You know, you can be a more intriguing person just by asking good questions, not even having to say anything about yourself. Because most of the time, people are all fighting over each other to try to tell their story. And most of the time, really, people are really confused when you go, oh, tell me what's been going on. And they're like, oh, my knee's sore. Fuck, mate. Yeah, I knew that. You want to tell me where this started? Like, what's happening? What's been going on in the past six months has been going on? And like, oh, and they're, they're perplexed by the idea that they have to tell this story. Dude, tell me, I'm listening. Like you got someone, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm waiting for the next fucking thing. You know, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Great, fantastic. Um, I, there's so many ways that you can improve just how you listen and communicate, just by looking at yeah you know, how we get better in romantic relationships, and you'll see that all your relationships will improve, all of them, right? 
you just you're better at listening. You're better at being available. You're better at setting boundaries, right? Someone asks you some questions about yourself, and then you're like, oh, hey, look, I'm not cool about answering that right now. And all of a sudden, you just kind of like previously when I was younger, I'd shit my pants. Someone asked me some weird fucking questions about myself. I'm like, what the fuck? I just kind of answer them because I didn't really understand boundaries. Then I was worried I was going to lose a client. Oh, you know. Anyway, just important things to consider. Go ahead and improve all your communication skills, all of them. It'll you'll change your life. It'll be better, and you'll be a better practitioner because you can listen better. Yay! And that means like hearing, like really listening, not hearing them, but really listening. It's, it's special. It's really nice. Um, there's two things I want to say. The first is about. Give me a sec. Okay, I'll move on to the second thing I was gonna I was gonna say. So back to Ellen, and then I'll come back to you, Tate. So the point of affirmations is like really powerful. That when you said that, I was like, wow, that's something that never even really came across in my mind. Because if you if you would put me in a clinic right now, I'll just be like, okay, do this exercise, do this. Um, like this is what the evidence says, whatever, do this. And there's not, well, to me, at least in how I practice, if I imagine myself in a clinic, there wouldn't be much like motivation or, um, or like building rapport or like, um, saying you got this, I believe in you. Or if someone's having a bad day and they didn't do the exercises, be like, that's okay. Um, like we all have bad days. You got this. Um, we can move on. We can continue. Um, that is really powerful, I think. And yeah. Or even in that stance that you mentioned, like something like I appreciate that you still came today even though it was really hard for you or you've been having a shit time. Like, I think I appreciate is really powerful, like you acknowledging their efforts. So, yeah, sorry, I just just stop cutting in, but yes. I'm just going to I'm gonna cut in as well. I'm just going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, um, this is what you've got to deal with when you're dealing with Tate and I, so it's just a little bit <laughs> You can also say to a client who has a chronic illness that is feeling unwell, I appreciate you staying home today and looking after your well-being and so that you can rest and show up for tomorrow. It's another thing. Like we really go ahead on the exercise, exercise, exercise. When you start working in the chronically ill space, you'll have clients that go, hey, Tate, I've woken up and I, I can't move today. And I'm like, yeah. hey, man, can you just focus on resting today and I'll check in on you later that you're okay. Yeah, I'm actually grateful that you didn't come in today. Thank you for not coming in today. It shows how much you've grown. Yeah. You know, yeah. like. And we we take things like pacing within chronic illness and we think that it's just for chronic illnesses. No, it's fucking every human being. Christ almighty. Like we all need to pace ourselves. It's just that those who are chronically ill, when they don't, the repercussions are massive. They spend a day in bed, two days, three days, right? And so when these people say, hey, man, I'm showing up for my body right? By resting. That's really special. And if you take that away, all that will come with is guilt and shame that they're not exercising, that they're not doing good enough. And they should really try harder and beat themselves into the ground again, like they've done before. What we say, words are really, really fucking powerful. They, uh, they, they really, you can really hurt someone by saying something really silly like that. Well, by not, by not, you know, being, uh, you know, it's like validating towards their experience 
and, and, and supporting them appropriately. And the expectations are like reversed because I don't know, maybe someone who's inactive, they've been told by their friends or family, or oh, why don't you exercise? Why don't you do this? You're only damaging your health, whatever. And to have someone actually be appreciating, like, yeah, it, they'll probably be expecting, oh, I didn't do the exercise. I'm scared of my EP. I don't know what they're going to say. Um, but actually having that comfort, you can build that connection way better and it will lead to better outcomes uh, in the long term. And when they're over-apologizing and saying, I'm really sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's them trying to resolve the guilt and shame for not showing up. Mm. And over time, what you'll see is, is that they get more comfortable, like, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, I can't make it in today. I appreciate that you're sorry. And I'm, you know what I also appreciate? That you're not being overly sorry because you feel so bad that we've built enough rapport. Like, these are the things that we see. At least I know that I see them. Is this person's no longer not saying a million sorries because they're feeling really guilty and really shameful? They go, no, Tate would want me to rest today. And so I'm just apologizing that I've booked this time out for him and I'm not showing up. Like, okay. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's seeing people grow. That's that. That is like, oh, fuck me. That's this shit that I froth on. Like, I froth hard for it. Love that shit. I'm showing up for me, for my body. That's their fucking affirmations, right? I thank my body every day when I do a oh, it's fucking weird and fucking wellness shit. Holy fuck. Well, after I do my little bit of yoga and my little bit of meditation in the morning, I have a few things that I say and I say to my body, I say, thank you for showing up for all the years I tried to fucking destroy you. And I'm really glad that you're still showing up for me today and telling me to rest when I need to. That's really nice. It actually feels really good. It fucking hurts a lot because it, <laughs> makes me reflect on some fucked up years of my life. But I'm really grateful for how strong it must be to go through and recover the shit that I did to it. That's really special. But that's taken me years to do. And I've it's fucked. If you can help your clients achieve that, that's fucking dope. That's really special because I know how hard it is, how hard that journey is of compassion. And yeah, you know, Henry mentioned something about sympathy over empathy. I'm kind of like compassion. Oh, around. oh around. empathy over yeah. empathy. Yeah. I'm kind of like, uh, I'm like on top of that. If, if empathy comes with like a large amount of like emotional labor as well, what we can try, and this is the thing where we need to like manage our emotions and it's really hard. We can show a lot of compassion as well, right? We can show a lot of compassion and try to remove ourselves from that a little bit. So we have a little bit more energy and it can be really hard and it takes a long time. But it means that we're not we're less likely to get emotionally burnt out by seeing clients. I'm going to be compassionate. I think that is very different being because it, yeah, yeah, I just think that's some like important to note. Mm, and <laughs> how does that relate to compassion fatigue? Because if we are being uh, patient centered and we really we really want to know their story, we want to listen to them, that that can be taxing. So have you? Uh, I had that experience. What have you done to like combat it, prevent it? Um, yeah, so well, prevent it. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, gonna... Yeah, it's not going to fucking um... happen. <laughs> You're fucked. Like... Oh, so sorry. I probably like blew out everyone's ears. Sorry. Seven burnout. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> burnout. Look, I uh, unfortunately and. I think that I'm a rather highly sensitive person. I'm a pretty deeply feeling person. And 
uh, that makes it really hard. And so I know where my capacity is each week. And that's about 20 to 25 hours of in-client out, like time per week. It's really quite limiting, but it means that the time that I do give, I think is very precious and really special. So you need to learn and figure out how much you can do before you start to getting to like start to get to that space of burnout. One, I think is a really important note. Uh, and also go and see a therapist. I say this on my fucking podcast all the time. We like, oh yeah, we need a mentor. So I know how to like navigate rehab programs and people are. I also need to learn how to navigate myself and my own emotions and how I can learn to hold space for myself while that person sits there and shares their story, which is really important to me. And I'm feeling it. I also need to not feel all of it and then be in the, tr- like feel everything they're feeling. Cause like uh, it, you get run into the ground. Like I, 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 you know, it's sometimes you end up crying with your clients that are telling you their story because you feel it. You, you know, you know that bit of their story and you start crying. It hurts. You feel it. it it's, it's really, it's, it's heavy. Um, but that's coming from someone who's like pretty sensitive. Like I'm a pretty sensitive person. I'm a pretty deeply feeling person. I'm a pretty deeply loving person. Uh, and so, you know, that, that comes with that. I'm, might not be as hard for someone who may be less so, which is really nice. Um, but I think you, you know, go to therapy, go to a therapist and go, Hey man, I-, I need to learn. It's the same skills that therapists have to learn as being able to like, it's, it's like detach a little bit, right? We don't have to be like this, but we can be like this, you know, there's still closeness. It's just that like, I'm not in your body feeling all of your emotions while you tell me your story. That that's pretty heavy. You know, it's almost like, um, it's like, here's them, you know, they're, 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 here's their parts, here's my parts, and we fill this space between us, which is the relationship we're building. And that's what we're filling the space with. It's not me trying to jump in their body and feel all of it, right? That's what we're trying to do is fill a space um, with all of our parts together that's really healthy and, and we can both manage what comes with it. I think it's something really important to work on as well. <sighs> Yeah, that balance is really important. That's a good way to think about it because, yeah, don't go all in or the opposite to fully detach yourself. Find that balance and know when you're reaching your capacity is really important. So, yeah, those are some great tips. Burnout creeps up on you before you know it and then you're like, oh, fuck, I'm actually burnt out now. <laughs> it's always fucking too late. And you're like, oh, shit, I'm in this fucking shithole sewerage fucking thing again. And you're like, how the fuck do I get out of it? And it's really hard. Um, so this is a thing that, like, it's going to be hard for new grads is you're going to feel it at some point. It's going to happen. If you think it's not, you're, you're pretty ambitious or you're a, like a sociopath. Ugh. Gives me the heebie-jeebies, right? If you don't feel it, you're crazy, man. You're going to feel it at some point. It's just because you're going to do a bunch of hours of work and then you're going to go, well, I can't do this amount of hours. <laughs> I need to do less. Hopefully you realize that. It doesn't take, you know, you don't do the thing that I did for so many years, which would gaslight myself to say, no, I need to do better and I need to earn more and I need to see more clients so I can help more people and I, then I can live the life I want to live and and I'm not trying hard enough and, you know, oh, I mean, you know, it all would spiral out of control. I hope that, you know, you guys don't go down that same path, that you get to get to that place and go, oh, remember that talk that we had about finding capacity? I think I'm at it. I need to do a bit less than this. 
because life only gets harder as you get older. Everybody, it's like everybody thinks school is the hardest thing. Then they go to university and go, no, nah, university is the hardest thing. Then someone goes and, and starts working and they go, no, nah, this is the hardest thing. And then they fucking do something else in life. And they know this is, it only fucking gets harder. You get more responsibilities. You have less support. You, ha- you, 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 and it's all on you. It does get harder. And in this job, you know, I see most people kind of going in as sole traders eventually at some point when they want to remove and get away from large businesses that don't pay them enough money. And you're like, now it's really fucking hard because I have to do the job of like 10 people just for myself. And then I've got relationships and a life outside of this job that I've got to do as well. And that's fucking hard to show up for them now. I definitely negatively fucked up one of my long-term relationships purely because, well, look, I mean, it's entirely my fault. I am accountable, but having undiagnosed, untreated ADHD really fucked me up and fucked me up doing this job, right? Like, right, that's 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 my that's my things to carry. I did those things, right? It's not an excuse. It goes, I know why. Now I'm working on them. Now I'm medicated out of my eyeballs. <laughs> oh my god. Can I pick up on something that you said, Tate? Um, I think there's a podcast that I really like, which is called The Dietitian Values with Laura Jean, and it's a business podcast which is like very, very person-centred, self-care orientated, all that kind of stuff. It's it's great. I really like it. And um, Laura refers to this thing, which is called the like having different seasons in your business. And one of the one of the things she encourages you to work out is what she calls the bare ass minimum. So when you're absolutely fucked, like when you are burnt out to the crisp, when you are dissociated out of your body for weeks on end, you're what a skeleton. Is your- yeah, exactly. What is your bare ass minimum? What can you still do regardless so you don't feel like you're chasing these things that are um, are unrealistic, which might only be achievable in a season where you're really, really functional or you're at the top of those peaks and troughs that you were describing earlier, Tate? And so I think it's really, as again, as you said, Tate, important to note that burn up will, burnout will sneak up on you and every time you burn out, you can learn something from it and try and kind of adjust things, but you will burn out again. You work in a face-to-face job with people, you are going to burn out. And so if you can use those periods to work out what your actual bare-ass minimum is, it allows you to actually recover and repair once you hit that point and learn from those experiences rather than, you know, putting a standard on yourself to like keep punching the numbers or keep running the sessions or doing all that kind of stuff. And um, there is a bit of privilege with that. Like I I have the privilege to be able to do that more than others because I'm a sole trader. So some people don't have as much flexibility in their work, but um, where you can, can that would definitely be something i would recommend around around burnout and preparing for burnout because to pretend as tate said like it's not going to happen is just the stupidity at its highest um particularly as a new grad i burnt out the most then because i had no idea what i was doing so yeah and i think you, your guys's experience will now help 
not only us, but hopefully other students mm. and um, like people we know. Yeah, so like all that suffering and hardship wasn't for nothing. You came out with some, you learned lots of new stuff. You came out with some frameworks like the bare ass minimum that now lots of other people can start implementing and maybe make that process of burnout easier for people. But it's really good just to acknowledge that and just, I guess, pat yourself on the pack on the back for um, discovering that and getting through that and now being able to share it. That's really special. Yeah, I think it's awesome. It's yeah. really, really good to see. And like, especially like, I just hope so many students see this because it's that side of working in healthcare is definitely overlooked a lot. And to hear it from you guys, especially like as in first, first hand is just awesome. Um, and yeah, it's really, even for me, highlighted definitely what to expect and really brought the nature of working in healthcare out to me, like really, really precisely. It's good. So there's this really nice privilege of being older and it's, you got to fuck up a bunch of times oh, and hopefully do better. Hopefully, not necessarily. You might, you, you might not fucking learn, but hopefully you did. And what you do is, is with that privilege, and just like we like to do when we're overflowing with anything, we hand it out to other people, right? And so we hand it down to people who are younger and it's a privilege to be younger. Because you get to sit there and listen to people who have done all that same shit and gone, hey, man, I tried all that shit. didn't work so well. Now, you got to figure it out for yourself. But this is all the shit that I did and how I went about it. And hopefully you listen, really listen, and go, hmm, I can build on that. You know why? Because I don't have to do the same fucking suffering that they did. I don't have to spend the years of suffering to get where they are. And I, it's like where I see, you know, Dan and I talk about this, where both in our 30s now, and we're like, man, it's so amazing to see these young people coming out of uni, even students talking about things that we're like, hey, man, I was only learning about that five years ago, and I thought it was remarkable. And I was already five years into working. And I'd already done all this shit and, you know, all those things, and you're like, wow, look at all these people growing. I didn't have any chance of having that when I came out of university, there's all these resources. So things are changing. It's just about listening and, and trying and, and building off all the other little bits. Cause we're all we're trying to do is help people. No one does this fucking job to make money. They do it. Well, I mean, yes, they want to get paid. We want a life. I want to have a holiday. I want to do X, Y, Z, you know, I want to buy a new fucking grinding machine from a coffee machine or whatever. Um, and uh but we do it because we want to help people I, I would say that's probably a universal thing that we all can say that we want when we're choosing this degree you know uh and so if we can all keep working towards this idea of allied health getting paid the money they deserve for the time that they give while also helping people and thus we can all have a slightly better existence rather than literally fighting over the scraps of what fucking billionaires leave for us behind fuck that shit He's out. <laughs> anyway, I hope that's okay. No, yeah. you're good. That's very good. Um, we want to wrap it up there because, yeah, we've been going for an hour and 15 minutes now. Yeah, I think that was just a really good hard-to-hard chat. It was good. Yeah. Wrap it up there. Um, 
Yeah. So you want to say some, I guess, some final comments, things you want to get? Final advice. Yeah. Final advice. Um, get a therapist. Do it now. <laughs> um, don't do it later when you fucked. <laughs> do it now. <laughs> I don't know whether to be scared or not. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to agree with that. Build a relationship with the practice, like with a therapist that you can now when things aren't shit. Uh, I've done enough, th- I've done like 18 years of like on and off therapy. So, like, if I go into therapy with a new therapist, I'm just like, listen and just lay this shit out. And they're like, oh, fuck, you know, I'm this, this, you're unhelpable. I can't help you. I'm <laughs> joking. No one said that yet. Yet. Um, anyway, yeah, definitely, definitely get into therapy. Yes, it can be expensive, but there are places that bulk bill. There is places like Headspace that are free for anyone under the age of 25, I believe. Look to build support and rapport, build your ability to communicate better, listen better, regulate yourself better, um, explore new things. Don't be scared by them. Reach out to practitioners that you admire. If they turn out to be a shit person, well, you know, someone not to fucking follow, right? Uh, I think, yeah, we're all, we're all really kind of scared of what to do next. And if you just start asking some questions, you like anyone who has any care in the world at all for your well-being will answer it. There may not be the answer you want, but like, you know, listen, get a bunch that you can and, and, and start, start trying to do all of the things it will be, um, hopefully really helpful. Nice. And um, before we wrap it up, I can't, I can't end this podcast without saying context matters. I just want to put that out there. Uh, we can't have a podcast without that. So, yeah, I guess uh, claims not people. Yes, claims Your not claims, people. Yeah. Um, and what are what are what are the patients' goals, guys? That's important as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are their values? What are their values? Um, yeah, <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you next week with another episode. So yeah, thank you guys.